chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to talk about the rapture of the church. Why the rapture is so important in light of current events. What does the rapture mean? How should we live knowing that the rapture is going to happen? Or is the Lord's return is soon for His church? The title of today's message is this, Living with an Expectancy of His Return. If you like taking notes, the title of the message is Living with an Expectancy of His Return. Because we all as a church, when we look at the needs around us, when we look at the the brokenness of the heart of man, it only drives us to realize that we should be rapture ready. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I want to be rapture ready. I want us to be ready for the rapture of the church now. And we can approach the coming of Jesus with an expectancy. You can approach the coming of Jesus with courage, with confidence now, living in preparation, knowing that He is going to come. And here Paul is going to speak to us on this very communion Sunday today, this morning, as to how we should live in expectancy for the return of Jesus, because He's coming again. Do you believe He's coming again? Amen? He is coming again. The Bible tells us of the rapture of the church. I was uh, watching a recent documentary and and it it showed that studies show that that most Christians, even some Christians, believe that even 25% of them believe no longer in a literal rapture of the church. And I want you to know that when you read your Bible, the Bible talks about a literal rapture of the church, a catching away, a rapturus, and it is known in its Greek word where the Lord takes now the church away from the earth and saves the church from the wrath and the judgment to come. That's what the Bible teaches us. And if you read Revelation, if you read Daniel, you read end time prophecy, you will know that the things that are taking place around us are setting up the stage now for the rapture of the church and for the judgment to come. Now let's go here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, because here Paul tells the church of Thessalonica that they ought to do four things, they ought to live in four ways as they now expect the soon return of Christ for His church. Now there are two different events that we, I pray that we don't get them confused today. The rapture of the church, number one, and the second coming. These are two independent separate events. The rapture is when the Lord takes His church from the earth. The second coming is when now we with the Lord come riding in our resurrected bodies on horses now. As He now declares righteous and and, and reigns on this earth and he rules and reigns on this earth for a thousand years now and Satan is cast down on now to the lake of fire and we have to know these two different events because we're going to be a part of both of them I was so excited thinking about the second coming of Jesus and I've always thought about it uh the second coming with Christ as we're riding in horses but I I forgot that we're going to come back riding on these horses with resurrected bodies. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that makes me excited. (laughs) Just imagine the church riding now, not in the bodies that we have now, but in our resurrected bodies to rule and to reign now. That is the second coming of Christ. But before that, the rapture must take place. Now Paul tells the church here in Thessalonica, you ought to now behave or live, conduct yourself. Live with number one, more holiness. Write this down, church, more holiness. Number two, more love, which is needed in our world today. 
Number three, more quietness. And we're going to talk about what that means, more quietness. And number four, finally, more hope. More hope. He starts off in saying this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ that you should abound more and more. He's going to use this, abound more and more, increase more and more. He says this, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk or live and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave to you through the Lord Jesus. That for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel or body in sanctification, being set apart or in honor, which means purity. Notice here, what is the will of God for our lives? For each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion and lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Then no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we are forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Can we pray? Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you because your word is relevant for today. Lord, it was true yesterday, it's true today, it's going to be true tomorrow, Lord. We thank you because your word teaches us in a literal rapture of the church. That as we look at the events taking place, Lord, at the brokenness in humanity in our world, we know that it sets the stage, Lord, for end times. And Lord, we want to be ready, we want to live in such way that we are expecting, Lord, you to rapture your church. And we ask, Lord, that we would know how to live. How is it that you've called us to live? Beginning with our holiness, our love, our quietness, and our hope. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Together we said, Amen. Amen. Now notice that this is a very important lesson because He doesn't want you to be an unbelieving believer. <laughs> what does that mean? It means that you are a believer that no longer believes now that Jesus is going to return for His church. I don't know about you, but if you've been raised in church or you've now maybe read this passage or maybe you've heard a message so many times that you've heard Jesus is coming again. And there are often times that we can become comfortable at the coming of Jesus and start to now compromise in our lives. Now here he's going to tell the church of Thessalonica, do not get comfortable. He is coming. <laughs> don't get comfortable. He is coming. And he says this in verse 1, finally, not a conclusion, but a transition here to the church. Brethren, I urge you and I exhort you by the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to have priority in this. I want to encourage you in this. I want you to know the importance of this by the authority of Jesus Christ. Just as you receive from us that you would abound. The word abound means that you would continue to grow more and more. Now I want you to know this, our Christian maturity, no matter how far you have come when it comes to holiness and when it comes to love, there is still room to grow. There are often times that we think of ourselves, well, we've come so far, there is still room to grow when it comes to holiness in your life. And there is still room to grow when it comes to love in your heart for others. That you would abound more and more. Notice he's going to use the word more and more here a few times. He's going to say increase more and more later. But here he's saying, I want you to even more so abound that you would continue to grow here. Verse 1, just as you receive from us on how you ought to walk and to please God. This is important here. 
Because he's stating his objective that you would know how you ought to live, number one, and how you ought to please God. Now, the way you live should be a way that pleases God. And the only way that it pleases God, if it's founded on the Word of God, on obedience to the Word of God, and we ask ourselves today, even in times that we're living in, is what I'm doing pleasing God? Notice that it doesn't say that you would please yourself, that you would please other people, but it says that you would please God because that's the only thing that is going to matter at the end of your life. Did you please God? At the end of your life, it's not going to matter if you please yourself, if you please other people, but it's going to matter if you please God. And that only comes by obedience to the Word of God. Now the person that is in Jesus Christ seeks to please God. The person that is in Jesus Christ will always seek to please God. The person that is not in Jesus Christ will seek to please themselves. I love what Chuck Smith said. He said, the man who seeks to please himself is rarely pleased. <laughs> Isn't that so true? The man that seeks to please himself is rarely pleased. But the man who seeks to please God has found true satisfaction. One of the greatest pleasures in life is that you have done that which pleases the Father. The greatest satisfaction in your life that you will have is that you have done that what has pleased the Father. True fulfillment, true pleasure, true satisfaction in life, as we talked about it this last Wednesday, is that you have pleased God. There are a lot of people that are happy today, but they're not satisfied. They might feel happy, but they're not fulfilled because it's not in Christ. Here he's telling them, I want you to know how you ought to please God. And he goes on in verse 2, and he tells them this as a command. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. You know that we gave you an order. Like a Roman military officer, we came and gave you orders through the Word of God, through the authority of Jesus Christ. We have given you a spiritual foundation. We have laid out a spiritual foundation for you to grow from. What is that spiritual foundation? The will of God here. Notice, this is the will of God. You ask yourself today, what is God's will for my life? What does God want from you today? What pleases God in your life right now? What is the heart of God for you? Specifically in the times that we're living in. Well, the will of God for us, to us, now in His Word that it speaks to us right now, it says this is the will of God, your sanctification. What is God's will? Is me becoming more holy. It is us becoming more holy. God's will for our lives is our sanctification. Sanctification is the process of us becoming more like Christ, of us, of us being separated for the purpose of God, of us being separated for the calling of God, of us being separated for the plan of God and holiness. This is the will of God for your life, your sanctification, your holiness. And holiness begins with, notice what he tells us here in verse 3, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now sanctification means this, that you would have nothing to do with sexual sin. Do you see how sexual sin is so popular in the world today? In fact, it was popular here in the Roman culture that he had to tell them, I don't want you to get your standard when it comes to your sexuality through the culture. I want you to get it through the Word of God. And I want you to abstain from sexual sin. I want you to be set apart from this godless culture and live the way God wants you to live. Are you living the way God wants you to live? 
Or are there hints of sexual sin in our lives? Notice how he's talking about sexual sin. He says this, verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess or how to carry his own vessel or his own body in sanctification, again, the word holiness, and in honor, in purity. God's will for our lives is that we would carry our bodies, our vessels, as a vessel, as an instrument for holiness and for purity. And he's speaking here to the church. Why does he have to tell this to the church? Because the enemy wants to come into the church and, and, have, and tempt people, men and women, to fall into any type of sexual temptation and sin and be living in sin in the return of Jesus Christ. Ask yourself, what will you be found doing at the rapture of the church? Where will you be? What will you be doing? What are the kind of things that you will be speaking Involved in participating in. Well, here he tells him, I want you to know that you were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Your body belongs to God and you should use it as a vessel. And now getting your standard to holiness from God's word and not from the world. You see how important this is? And now he's saying abstain from these things for holiness. Now I want you to know this, that holiness has much to do with what you abstain from as what? You participate in. He's saying, I want you to abstain from anything that is now leading you to sexual sin because this is God's will for your life leading up to the rapture. Verse 5, not in passion of lust, not motivated by lust, not motivated by the desires of your flesh. You know who is motivated by the desires of the flesh here it says? Like the Gentiles who do not know God. Those that do not know God are motivated by the desires of their pleasures and their flesh, and they accept any type of sin, specifically the sin of now sexual sin. And it doesn't matter if you're single or you're married, we must be protected of sexual sin. Because the enemy wants to disqualify you from being right with God by tempting you so that you enter into these places that, and where you do not belong. That you participate in these areas where you should not be a part of. And he's saying, this is the will of God. Number one, your holiness. Not in passion, not in lust, not motivated by these things. In fact, the church should display self-control. The church should display self-discipline in the days that we're living, representing holiness before the Lord. And those that do not know God, that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother, verse 6, in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Now the reason why he's saying that you should remain holy is so that you don't defraud your brother, that you don't cheat, cheat someone. Well, what does that mean, that I wouldn't cheat someone in sexual sin? That means that you wouldn't cheat someone in adultery or in fornication now through now cheating them of their purity, of their sanctification, and of their holiness. Do you see how much fraud takes place when families are broken up? The defrauding of it when families are broken up due to adultery or to fornication or to sexual sin. Do not defraud. Do not cheat someone with fornication or with adultery now. Because your sexuality is reserved for marriage and in marriage only now. Notice how he's speaking of this now. And he tells us in verse 6 that the Lord, the, verse six, that the Lord is the vendor, avenger of all such as we forewarned you and testified. Now the Lord will come and avenge sin. Even if it's undiscovered. Even if it's secret sin. It's not secret before the Lord. 
Even as we warned you now, as we told you, there will be consequences to our sin. And the Lord is the avenger. The Lord will deal with sin. There is nothing that is undiscovered by man that God will not deal with. He said, I want you to remain holy because God is going to deal with sin. Verse 7, he says, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. What did God call you to? He didn't call you to lust. He didn't call you to sexual sin. He called you not to uncleanness, but he called us to holiness, to live a pure life. Why is this important? Because this is part of your calling. And a life of impurity is inconsistent to who you are in Jesus. A life of sexual sin is inconsistent to who you are in Jesus. Sex out of marriage is inconsistent to who you are in Christ. That is not the image of Christ. Not only this, he goes on and says, verse 8, He did not call you to uncleanness, but holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man. Now you would say, well, you know what? I don't, I don't like that teaching. I don't like what he said today. <laughs> well, whoever rejects this is not rejecting the teaching of man. He's rejecting the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit that is given to us in these last days. So that we have the power to overcome the temptations that are coming our ways. And he's saying, if you have an argument against this, it's not, it's not directly towards me. In fact, the argument is against the Lord. The disobedience is not towards man. It's against the Lord because this is a commandment directly from God. This is a commandment that will grieve the Holy Spirit if you're living in rebellion, compromising in the area of your holiness. Number one, what does he say? Abound, in, abound more and more in holiness. But here now, from verses 9 through verse 12, he's going to tell us to abound in, more and more in love. We all know that we need more love today in our world. That we as Christians ought to be known by love. We as a church ought to be displaying love to the world. That our hearts should break for the things that breaks the heart of God. That our hearts should break for a lost world. That we should have compassion to carry one another's burdens so that we can go and extend and show mercy. That's what the Word of God tells us. Now he says in verse 9, But concerning brotherly love, now he's talking about more love. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God. This is amazing. You have no reason that I should remind you of this. Because you've already read it in the Word of God. You've been taught by the Word of God. You know the importance of this. You've been taught by the Word of God how you ought to live. And it says here in verse 9, that you ought to love one another and abound one another. That I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And it says, verse 10 now, And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you should increase more and more. This is amazing here. Why don't you underline in your Bible where it says, increase more and more. You've already been taught by the Word of God that you ought to love one another. You've already been taught by the Word of God that you should grow in this. And you're already doing it to the church in Macedonia. You're doing a great job, church, on loving one another. <laughs> you know what he tells them though? But I want you to continue to grow in that area. You see, we must repent in our hearts if we are not loving the way God wants us to love. And we have to ask the Lord, Lord, examine my heart that I love the way you have commanded me to love. Because He's saying, I know that you're loving this church and you're doing a great job at it, but I want you to increase even more, that you would increase even more and more in the way that you love people. 
This is the lifestyle, this is the conduct that God has called us to live in as we're living in last days. Now in fact, He has called us through Scripture to love, number one, calling us to love, number one, regularly. Would you write that down? Call to love regularly. In John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus told His disciples this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, I also tell you this, by this they will all know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the new commandment that we love one another. We're called to love regularly. But the Bible also calls us to love sacrificially. You're also called to love sacrificially. In 1 John 3.16, the Word of God tells us this, By this we know love, that because He laid His life down for us, we also ought to lay our life down for our brethren. We ought to serve one another sacrificially. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. You know what he's saying? I want you to love in, in word, but I want you to love in action as well. With the events taking place in our world, our hearts should be open to love people because you can never minister to a world and to a people that you do not love. If you want to minister to someone, if you want to reach someone, we have to have a heart that is ready to love. And to love sacrificially, love in action. But the Bible also tells us, number three, that we, should, we ought to love without partiality. Without partiality. In Galatians, in James chapter 2, verse 8, it says this, if you really fulfill the royal law or the supreme law of the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. You're doing a great job if you love your neighbor as yourself. However, James 2, 9 says this, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, if you love people, but you discriminate your love to other people, then that's not real love. We ought to love without partiality, not demonstrating any type of partiality when we're extending the love of God to others. Then we wouldn't say, you know what, I love this group this way, but then I don't love another group the same way. Love without partiality. And this is exactly why he's saying, I want you to increase in love more and more. I want you to develop the way you love people. You see how we need that as Christians? In Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul tells the church that you would love without hypocrisy not only love regularly or sacrificially or without partiality but also love without hypocrisy what does that mean that that we ought to not love people one way and then speak about them the other way when they're not there in fact it says in romans 12 let love be without hypocrisy hate what is evil cling to what is good be kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another do you notice how it's so important that we utilize love as a way to minister people? That we love other people because He first loved us? That we have an open heart to that? But also that we would love truthfully. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it says this, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, does not, he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he has not seen? You see how love in action is so important to those that are around us, to those that are our neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Everyone is your neighbor. Not only the person that's a believer, the person that is a non-believer can get ministered by the way that you love them. 
The person that, that needs Jesus is that person that needs love. That they become ministered now and understand the love of God through how we are being extensions of who Christ is. And that's exactly what he's telling them. I want you to grow more and more. And from verse 11 and 12, he says, but I want more quietness as well. This, is, this means maturity. This means simplicity. Notice this in verse 11. That you also aspire. What do you aspire today, church? What are you aspiring? What is your goal? What is something you're looking forward to? That you aspire now to lead. Notice how it uses the word lead. That you pursue, that you aspire, that you desire. That this would be your ambition to lead this way. To lead yourself in this way. That you would lead a quiet life. Circle that church. We need more of a quiet life within us. Because it speaks about our holiness. That you would lead yourself in this direction. A quiet life is a life that has peace, that has calmness. A life that has rest even in difficult situations. It is a life that has found satisfaction. In fact, if you, you want to really describe this in such a basic way, a quiet life means that you would lead a simple life. That you would lead a simple life, a humble life. How can you lead a quiet life? Notice right after it says, to mind your own business. Wow, a lot of us don't like that. <laughs> you want to lead a quiet life, you have to mind your own business. <laughs> this is so important. Because this is exactly what the church needed to hear, what they needed to be reminded of, as they had to have this laser focus on Jesus is coming again. They had to have this focus that Jesus is coming again, that they would mind their own business and work with their own hands as we have commanded you. We've already told you to labor with your hands. In this culture, they believe that if you labor with your hands, you're a lower class citizen. He said, hey, there's nothing wrong with that, working with your hands, laboring with your hands, or sweating with, you know, on the brow of your head. There's nothing wrong with that. That's an honorable work. It's, it's dignified. Represent God as you labor with your hands. Work and labor hard with your hands. As we've commanded you, as we instructed you. And in fact, we don't want a lazy church. <laughs> Do not be a lazy church. He's saying, work with dignity. Work with honor now. Lead a quiet life. And work with your hands as we have commanded you. That you walk properly toward those who are outside. That you may lack nothing. See this love. And this hard work. And this work ethic. And this focus on the return of Christ. What does it do in verse 12? It allows you to walk properly. See, there's a difference between what is proper in your life and what is not proper in your life. What is proper is that we would lead a quiet life, focus on the Lord's return, yes. But that we would be busy until He comes. Working with our hands. Being focused on His return. In today's time, it's so difficult to li live and to lead a quiet life. Because a lot of people in today's world, even in our time for us, we struggle with now entertainment or excitement and the reason why we can lead a quiet life or we cannot grow is because if it's not exciting or if it's not entertaining then we don't want to be a part of it we're driven by an entertainment exciting type of culture a feel-good culture and it's almost become a, a, as of a religion to some people and it seduces people it traps people in their lives for the thrill of a moment I just want the thrill of a moment I want the adrenaline I want it to be fun is it gonna be exciting is it gonna be fun Instead of asking the important questions, such as, is it going to be true? Is it going to be pleasing to God? 
Is it going to be right? Is it good? Is it godly? You see that living a quiet life is so important and we need to live a quiet life. Because it does, what it does is that in times like the ones we live in, it allows us to give our attention to Jesus. And when we live a quiet life, we can listen to God and we can get to know Him better. The reason why we can't listen to God and get to know Him better is because we are now wanting to live in the thrill of excitement and entertainment only. You see how the Lord needs our time? So that we can live and walk properly, that we can represent the church in a godly way. Verse 12, it says that you would walk properly to those that are non-believers. Now more than ever, if there was ever a day, today it's the day. Where the world needs to look at the church and see a pure church. Where the world needs to look at the church and see a loving church. Where the world ought to look at the church and see a church that is busy about Focusing on the return of Jesus Christ with a good testimony. Not with a bad testimony, but with a good testimony representing the church as the bride of Christ. Protecting her reputation. Protecting her godly influence now so that you walk properly. And now from verse 13 to 18 as we read this, is going to tell us after we talked about more holiness, more love, more quietness, now he's going to speak about more hope. And this is exactly what the church of Thessalonica needed, more hope. This is exactly what our world needs today, more hope. Hope in what? Comfort in what? Encouragement in what? You would ask yourself. Well, here he's going to give them hope now, or take them to the hope that he's referring to, and that is the coming rapture of Jesus Christ. You can have hope as you're living this way. Notice this. And it says here, but I do not want you to be ignorant. Too many times when we put our Bible aside and we now listen to the voice of the world instead of the voice of God's word, instead of the voice of God, we become easily ignorant of the times. The church is not called to be ignorant of the times. It's called to discern the time. <laughs> Write that in your Bible, discern the time. What is the time that we're living in? The end times. But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, considering those that have fallen asleep. I don't want you to lose hope when we talk about the rapture, concerning those family members or those believers, those Christians that have fallen asleep. He uses this word as them uh, of, of a physical death. And I don't want you to be ignorant as of those that have experienced a physical death, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And, and look about the sorrow that he's talking about. I don't want you to be ignorant when it comes to the rapture. I don't want you to be ignorant when it comes to the second coming. I want you to learn what happens after the physical death of those that have died now. He calls them, they have sleep, slept, because they're going to be awakened. Their body is going to be resurrected, to have a resurrected body. And he's going to explain to us as to why. But I don't want you to sorrow here, Paul is saying, as of those who have no hope. What does this mean? That as we sorrow today, as we sorrow uh, as over the grief of maybe a loved one, over the grief of the world that we're living in today, as we sorrow, it's a hopeful sorrow. Not, understand that. It is a hopeful sorrow. Why is it a hopeful sorrow? Because you're looking to the return of Jesus Christ. We carry our pain as a church with hope. And this is exactly what he's talking about. In fact, when he's talking about the death of someone before the rapture, he's saying, I want you to look at it as if the sadness of sending someone off on a long journey, being sad that you're not going to see them for a while, 
but knowing that later on you will be reunited with them. You see that in Christ, you can have a hopeful sorrow. You can carry pain and sorrow and grief with hope. That's what he's talking about. Now in verse 14 it says, But if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which we believe that church, can anyone say amen? amen. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the resurrection, the power, even so God will bring with him those that sleep in Jesus. <laughs> now notice that he says those that sleep in Jesus. Because they're sleeping in Jesus, their body, the word sleep is a word to describe the comfort and the peace of a physical death, of, of disembodied spirits that have gone to heaven without a resurrected body yet. That's what the Bible speaks about here. I don't want you to be ignorant, just like we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that He has power over death, also those that have died will experience the resurrection and the rapture with us, and we can have confidence just like we have confidence in the resurrection of Christ, you can have confidence in the resurrection of the dead. This is amazing. This is something that you can look forward to. Just imagine every time I pass by even a cemetery, a graveyard, whatever it would be, and you see all the tombs and all that, I just imagine, just imagine on the day of the rapture where you're just going to see just, just body just flaring up from the ground and, and just incredible sight that we will see and be a part of as bodies would be lifted up and resurrected. Do you see how this is so important now? You can have confidence in this. In fact, notice how he tells us this in verse 14 about a hope. You can have hope in this. Do you know why a lot of people don't have hope? Because of unbelief. Because of unbelief, they don't have hope. And really, hopelessness in the heart of man Hopelessness in the heart of, of mankind, hopelessness in the heart of people creates fear. The times that we're living in, you see that people that are living in fear, guess what? It, is due with hopeless, it has to do with hopelessness. And here he's saying, you don't have to be afraid. In verse 15, it tells us this, For we say by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, until the rapture of the church, will by no means precede those who have fallen asleep. We won't go before them, they'll go before us. You see how the rapture takes place? First those that are dead are going to be raised up to heaven, and then those that are alive are going to be caught up. That's the order of which the rapture will take place. They will not have a disadvantage because they've already now slept or died now or their spirit is in heaven they haven't received a resurrected body but he's saying they will go first and then we will go we will not perceive them when he returns to meet us in fact he says this in verse 16 as we continue to read for the lord himself will descend from heaven how many of you guys are excited about the lord descending from heaven amen the lord will descend from heaven and as the lord descends guess what happens the church ascends <laughs> That's so amazing. This is going to be such a glorious moment. The Lord ascend, and look how He ascends. He's, he doesn't ascend quietly. The Bible says that He will ascend with a shout, with a voice, and with a trumpet. This is amazing. With an announcement now, as a commanding officer of a ship. Just think about this. With a commanding Roman officer or an army officer, what they would do when they would gather the troops, they would blow their trumpet and all the troops. That was a sign of war. Gather the troops. Blow the trumpet. The troops ought to be gathered. Now Jesus Christ is going to do this. Hey, blow the trumpet of God. Let the church be gathered now and be raptured and caught up to heaven. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what's going to take place? And he tells us this in this verse 16. He will descend from heaven with a shout 
And with the voice here from heaven, or a voice of an archangel, he will be accompanied by angels here. And with the trumpet of God, the trumpet of God will sound. And the dead in Christ will rise first. When he blows that trumpet, it says that the graves will open and the dead will rise first and be transformed into the resurrected body. And they will experience a physical resurrection here. Notice that. What, what, this is so much hope that is filling us with today. The rapture will not be a secret. It, it will come announced now with a trumpet sound. Although the majority of the people that hear this sound will not understand the sound or the meaning of the sound. Are you ready to hear that sound? Will you discern the trumpet sound? Will you understand the meaning of that sound? Will you be called to attention to fall in line to our commanding officer when that sound is now given so that we will be raptured by the church? Notice what it says in verse 17. Then we who are alive will remain, shall be caught up together. This is where we get the word rapture, caught up. We'll be caught up together. I love that word, caught up. Would you take note of the word caught up? Because I'd rather be caught up by the Lord than be caught up in the world. <laughs> and you're going to be caught up of one of two ways. Do you want to be caught up in the things of this world or do you want to be caught up and ready to be caught up by the Lord? To be raptured by the Lord? And this caught up speaks about someone that is now seizing or carrying away by force. To meet the Lord in the air now, notice this. One, a church that is ready to, a church that is caught up, a church that is not left behind to the tribulation. But it says this now, they will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet. The word meet is, he's going to welcome them into heaven as his honored guest, as his honored now invited guest now into eternity. And it tells us this, we shall always be with the Lord. Circle those words, underline those words. Those words are filled with promise. Those words are filled with hope. We will always be with the Lord. All of us. Notice this, not only will we always be with the Lord, we'll also be with those that went before us, those that died before us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be reunited with them and always be with the Lord. This is a straightforward message that He's giving us that He doesn't want us to misinterpret. And He says, I want you to be ready for the rapture because you're going to be caught up. You're going to be raptured by the church. And it matters the way that you're living today for that very moment. You don't want to, be miss you don't want to miss that moment. You want to be rapture ready. That you're saying, I'm living for hol in holiness. I'm living in love. I'm abounding in love. I'm abounding in quietness. But I'm also abounding in hope. What is the hope that he gives us? This very last verse, verse 18. Therefore, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Therefore, knowing this, that we will have a union with Christ, that Christ is our source of comfort. You can have hope now. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Our union with Christ is the source of our comfort. Our union with Christ is the source of our comfort. Knowing, yes, those family members were a part of my past. They're going to be a part of my future. But now here, the Lord has promised that He's going to resurrect the church now. And He's going to now rapture it as well from this earth. But for what purpose is now the Lord going to rapture it? 
Or why is it that we can find comfort in these words? Well, you can find comfort that you will not be left in the judgment to come of the world. Number one, you can find comfort in that. That you will not be left for the judgment of this world. You can find comfort that you will be in a place where no more tears, no more sorrow, and no more pain in heaven. You can find comfort in that. You can find comfort that you're going to have personal fellowship with God and you will be never separated from the presence of God to worship and to fellowship with Him. Find comfort in that. Find encouragement in that. You can carry pain and sorrow as you're saying, Lord Jesus, come quickly now. Lord, I'm ready for the trumpet sound that when the trumpet sounds, the church just raises His arms and said, Lord, I'm ready for you to take me. Lord, take me up. Because the Bible speaks about in Revelation, about a tribulation period. After the rapture. And you see how the events in this world are taking place. They're being set up for the tribulation and for the rapture of the church. The Bible says that there's going to be a seven year period called the tribulation. The first three and a half years are going to be a place where the, now the world is going to look and buy into a false sense of hope. A hope when it comes to financial hope. A world, one world government. A one world health system. A one world now order. It's all going to be governed by one man named the Antichrist. The Bible speaks about him. And he's going to come and offer a full sense of hope and security that many of the church is going to be deceived and swayed away by him. For the first three and a half years, now he will now establish peace and hope on this world. He will even now rebuild the temple in Jerusalem that has been destroyed. That the Jewish people are waiting. Whoever rebuilds that temple is going to be the Messiah for us. And at the three and a half year mark, what's going to happen is that he's going to go into that temple, declare himself to be God, and say, worship me. Over the next three and a half years, to complete that seven year period, there's going to be something known as the Great Tribulation. That's the greatest wrath that this world will ever or have ever known. We are now, the Holy Spirit would have been removed from this earth. And men will run for their lives. It's going to say that during that time, people will have to take the mark of the beast to be able to buy or sell, to live, to transact. And whoever doesn't, their heads would be cut off. Notice this, church. We ought to be ready to be raptured by the Lord. That we would escape the judgment to come. Escape the judgment to come. Escape the deception of the spirit of the Antichrist. And that we'd be ready to meet the Lord in the clouds in the air. To be with Him always forever. And notice this. We can comfort one another with these words. How many of you guys know that we can comfort one another with the coming of the Lord Jesus? That He's coming again. Amen. Can we praise God for that? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray right now. As we prepare our hearts to take communion. But as we do so, we want to tell the Lord, ask the Lord, Lord, give me a focus, a laser focus for the rapture. Lord, I want to be ready for when you come. I don't want to be deceived by the agenda of this world, by the politics of this world, God. I want to read my Bible. I want to understand, discern the times. I don't want to be ignorant of the times. I don't want to be fooled, strayed, swayed. I ask right now, Lord Jesus, and we ask right now for repentance in our hearts, Lord. So that we can reach a hurting world. 
But repentance in our hearts also so that we can be right with you, God. So that we can be right with you.